Mansell with HJ Sports, and today we're going to go over our new sites within the Tetra line for 2022. So new for 2022, we actually came out with a new way to mount your scope housing to the infinite adjust bracket. No longer do you have to worry about your vertical adjustments uh, intertwining with the second axis adjustments. So as you'll see on the scope housing, uh, there's actually an additional brick. You can either mount that to the inside of the riser or to the outside of the riser. We recommend that for most traditional bows, you mount that to the inside of the riser and for any sort of sight that you're gonna mount in line with the bow to use the outside. Just flip that around um, and mount it to the outside of the riser. So within each of the product categories, we have the Tetra Max, the Tetra, and then the Tetra LT. As always, our Tetra line of sights come in four different scope housing size options, an inch and three eighths, an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarters, and then also our four pin housing, which is an inch and three quarters. We also offer a 10 thousandths pin and a 19 thousandths pin for both single pin and four pin options. On the Tetra itself, we once again have micro adjustments as well as your macro gain adjustments for left and right. For your vertical adjustments on your Tetra bow sight, you'll want to use the screw right here on the infinite adjust rail and the screw below that. You'll just loosen those and slide it up and down. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra bow sight is the integrated scope ring that has a built-in level. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra site is the ability to take a 2500 blue burst light. This is an added on accessory, but you can actually put that on there to add light to your pin or to reduce light. With that, we also have mechanical rheostat, which is an exclusive feature to HHA on the Tetra line. You'll be able to turn in the rheostat if you want to dim the light, and then you'll also be able to turn it out if you want to let more light in. Also on our 2022 Tetra line bow sights, the Tetra comes in either a fixed frame, our Hunter Edition frame, or it comes on a four to eight inch adjustable dovetail. All HHA products are 100% made and sourced in the USA, and they carry a 100% lifetime warranty. For any more questions, please visit our website at www.hjsports.com. Hello, we're at the BATA show at uh, Veteran Innovative Products, uh, an all-American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran 4-Blade. As you can see, 4-Blades got a lot of the same high-quality materials we used with our original 2-Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay, those compress, and then the broadhead opens. It still has our momentum management compressible blade technology. So the the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed. Uh, in flight, it's one inch by inch and a quarter. Another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like. So swap the tip out, get you 125 grains instead of 100, which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click and another click on the other side. It's completely set in, will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. 
Welcome back, guys. This podcast is brought to you by RPG Coffee Company, a veteran-owned and operated socially responsible coffee company born to support members of the military, law enforcement, and firefighting communities by donating 50% of their profits. The true secret to living is giving. And don't forget to join the RPG Coffee Club today. Don't wait until you run out. Stay ready to rock by having RPG Coffee delivered straight to your door each month with our coffee club. folks thank you for tuning into another episode of bucks of america podcast i am your host jeff vance and and this episode is gonna be a fun one here because carson and i have done a podcast with another group of guys here a few months a few weeks back and we decided we hit it off and we figured like hey let's do one of my podcasts so we can go from there now this podcast we're gonna be just talking about what's going on in idaho we're gonna be talking about carson his is he's an active duty uh service member so thank you for your service sir and paying taxes, man. Yeah, you're very welcome. So we're going to talk about uh, his his all upbringing about hunting and his current uh, spring bear hunt, and talk about some of his trials and tribulations. But uh, we're going to let him kind of take the reins and go for wherever whatever direction he wants to go. Now the best part is he could talk just like me, so I am not worried about the conversation drying up. So, man, Carson, tell us about who you are. Tell us your story. What's up, guys? My name is uh, Carson Grigg. I am a uh... I'm a Southern boy by heart. I grew up in eastern, northeastern Texas, uh, around College Station area, hunting pigs and whitetail my entire life. Uh, uh, I'm the true definition of white trash, just as they come. Uh, hunting, hunting possums, coons, squirrels, you name it, everything from whitetail deer and hogs down in Texas, uh, up to Barbary sheep over in western Texas and mule deer in western Texas. Uh, now I live up north and I hunt elk, mule deer, antelope, bear, you name it. Uh, I've had a few fo- close calls with some mountain lions here recently. Up oh, here, shit. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's it's gnarly up here. They are getting brave. I don't know if they're just hungry or what, but uh, it was also turkey season. And I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast with Jeff or not, uh, Jim or not, but it was uh, we had some some decoys set out. And we're sitting there calling and calling, and we get up to pack up our decoys just about getting to where we're tired of sitting there. Everyone has that hunt when you get skunked, and we weren't hearing any birds chirping. We weren't hearing any squirrels. We should have known better that something was in the area. And we get just over the crest, and about 30 yards in front of us is the biggest tomcat I've ever seen in my life. It was a toad man, a monster. That 20 gauge TSS I shot at him didn't even phase him. He, he was very upset that we were there. He didn't back down at all until my buddy with the 12 gauge TSS let him have it. And we saw some flutter fly, but we, we didn't have any sidearms on us or nothing. We didn't expect to encounter anything like that. It it's been, but the 2022 bear season, spring bear season has been an absolute bust for me and my friends. Uh, I guess we're in the wrong location. We have three bait barrels set out between us and, just nothing's touching them. Nothing's eating, nothing's touching them. And, and it could be because I'm just a bad hunter or it could be uh, the bears haven't quite woken up yet. I don't know. There's still a lot of, quite a bit of snow up that direction. So. Oh yeah. Considering it's granted it is June, but over here we're dealing with 90 degree heat and up there it's like you get high enough in the altitude, you're still still seeing snow. 
We've had a few days in the 80s down here, but I'm at 3,000 feet, but where our bait barrels are at 7, 6. So. Oh, shit. So, yeah, so it's a whole other uh, atmosphere up there. Yeah, it's a whole other ecosystem. And they, it's, you know, it dips down in the low 30s at night for sure. Uh, I'm, I wish I could tell you, like, yeah, this is what I'm doing wrong. But if I could tell you those things, I would fix those problems. So we're just hoping to spot and stalk a few bears this, this year. We're going to try. We got a few more weekends to get up and look around. So uh, when does your season end then? Our season ends uh, July. Uh, July. Yeah, July 1st. No shit. It runs that late into the year. That I, I I would never have thought that, but then again, I don't. I haven't talked to anybody that actually goes spring bear hunting up in Idaho. So, so, um, so different regions of of, uh, of Idaho as all the public land regions. Each region is different rules, different rules and regulations. So you have like unit unit thirty nine where we're at it ends ends in July, and then you have unit forty four who ends in uh, mid mid June. So it depends on what Department of Fish and Game is really pushing, how many they've harvested and stuff like that. But from what I'm hearing, nobody's shooting shit out there. So, so um, badgers are moving around quite a bit out here. Uh, it's becoming an issue for some of the farmers and stuff like that. All the badgers coming in and biting their cows and getting angry and horny. So it just might get some varmint hunts here pretty quick. So now uh, with your varmint hunts, then do you, since you've been in the area for a minute, do you have people that will reach out to you because you've, you've met them face to face or how does that work if you want to get out there and help out a farmer? Well, so a lot of people have like the cowboys that work for these farmers and ranchers and stuff like that. The cowboys will normally help take care of it. And they have a few, uh, they'll mostly call Idaho Fish and Game and Idaho Fish and Game has their professional hunters that they'll call and they'll be like, Hey, we got a problem in this area with these amount of coyotes. They need to get rid of them. And then the government will pay somebody to just go wipe them all out. And they never wipe them all out. <laughs> I, uh, them coyotes are a very resourceful, resourceful creature. You got to respect them for that. Their ability just to bounce back in population. It seems like it, once you kill one, two of them replace it. It's they're everywhere out here. You can't, to where I work, uh, it's about a 20 minute drive on open plains, high desert. You can't drive to work dawn or dusk without seeing a coyote or a badger. It's impossible. Wow. That's, that's pretty crazy. I've seen a few coyotes around here during the daytime, but we, we usually, once it gets about daybreak, they tend to shut up real fast that you, you'll see them walking around. I think the latest I've ever seen a coyote walk around was like 10 o'clock, but then again, we're very, we're, we're very green. So it doesn't take much to watch them disappear. Yeah, we we don't have that luxury. We have a lot of sagebrush, not not too much foliage and tree coverage and stuff like that. So they they tend when it gets starts to get hot, they dip down in their holes and stuff. But the rabbits are, I can't remember the term exactly, but deer and rabbits eat the same schedule. You know, uh, first light, last light kind of thing. They don't really move around at night and stuff like that. And so they those coyotes tend to hunt in that in that that window. Those like right before dark and right right. Before, before sunrise that's true so, that is i can see that i the when i'm looking recalling some of my tr- pictures on my trail cams like that makes sense when i'm seeing them at that time frame when they're out there walking and eating so i, I completely understand now i but never, it's one of those things where you know it doesn't sink in to actually talk about it out loud and then there's like oh ta-da 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's what they've been doing. It's it's hard to put a pattern on animals as a lot of animals as well because it just some of them have such a wide range of what they're doing, and some of them are just crazy. So you'll you'll get you'll notice an animal is just way out of his pattern or what it is colleagues are doing you know the other animals in his area that they're just like him just they're doing something completely different i've seen coyotes run around at noon but i've never seen a wolf run out in the middle of the day i've never seen a wolf run out in the middle of the day i've always seen them right before dark or right right after the sunrise yeah even even the recalling because we have we didn't have a a wolf season this year in wisconsin because a lot of anti bitched and moaned and, and then they they caved to them but when we did have a season last year, not a single one was shot at in, in the daytime. They were all shot at night, either right at dusk or in the morning or throughout the day. It all depends if they were running dogs, if they were calling to. It played a role in where they were at, too. Idaho did the complete opposite of what your state did. Uh, instead of listening to all the people bitching and moaning about, oh, you're killing the, the wolves, Idaho basically just opened season on them. They're giving out unlimited tags. No you shit. Pick them up over the counter. If it's you see one, you kill one. That's that's the rule in Idaho. Wow. Well, that ain't going to make sense, though, because like we were before we hit before I hit record, we were discussing how expensive everything is for the livestock. And if, if, a, if a wolf takes down a couple of cows, they like they're we all you and I understand that they are serial killers of the wild. They'll 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 kill for pleasure and they'll wipe out an entire herd of elk and mule deer. They'll go after a couple of cattle if it's if it's easy pick pickings. And then I don't know about you guys yet, but a lot of our um calves a lot of our cows are calving right now so a lot of people a lot of our uh, farmers have been in high alert for making sure no nothing comes in and gets after them so our cows have already dropped uh they've already dropped they're getting big they're getting where they're running around our calves are but it's not so much down where i am that's not so much of a problem because we like i said we're open we don't have much trees we don't have much we don't have much cover for the wolves so they don't really come down off the mountains the wolves in the southwestern part of idaho where i live live up in the mountains they hunt elk predominantly they're not too much of a problem on the herds down here but up in northern idaho it's the opposite lots of trees lots of coverage lots of places where they can sneak in and out lots of uh, topography and stuff that they can just dip and disappear they'll snag cows all day long calves and cows entirely they'll just in and out just faster than you can blink an eye and it's amazing these power of these animals just how as much as i hate them you have to respect them it, it they're a perfect killing machine they they have been it, it's more so the mountain lions down here eating people's pets that's that's the issue that we have the wolves are really smart <laughs> the the elk in this uh, mountain range like right right where i live the elk will actually migrate down off the mountain have their uh, babies like in the in the fields, they'll have their babies in the fields because they know the wolves won't come at them where they're where they're at. So they'll have them in the fields. We've even had a few of them in the golf course here in town. The no elk come down into the golf course and have their babies. Hey, I'm all for I'm all I'm all for that that uh, repro- any way to get them out of them and get them on the land, get them walking, and then go from there. Say, hey, if I was a, if I'd be a little upset if I was the owner of the golf course, but hey, it's just you you they were there first. Yeah, they, 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 it's their land. We just stole it, man. We have a history of doing that, unfortunately. But it's just, um, yeah, it would be nice to be on hold nine and feel a tag at the same time. But unfortunately, during the winter, they they head up north. They head back up into the mountains. So, and it 
I was, uh, I went camping. We went and stayed a couple of days up near the bait barrels and stuff. We were, we did, we did nine miles in two days, a real light, but a lot of elevation change, a real light hike, real enjoyable scenery. It was nice and green. Uh, the snow was just now getting to where it was melting, where you can walk around and the elk, man, I swear they know when the season is, you know, you're starting to get elk with a little bit of velvet, but not their horns aren't completely developed the antlers aren't completely developed sorry for those people oh my god he called them horns antlers okay antlers i know the difference i'm just white trash and i call them what i want <laughs> and you start seeing them and i'm sitting in a bright red hammock with a fire going making me some some mres for my meal and four elk just walked 50 yards away from me you can check it out on my instagram i have a video of it uh, they just walking right next to me just hanging out. They, they don't give a, a shit. But as soon as September rolls around, I'm not going to see a damn one. I, whoever's in charge of my simulation, my like rendering my world, whoever's in charge of that forgot to put animals into it this year. <laughs> they they forgot. Yo, your target animal? Yeah, you're not going to see any of those. But here's you a moose. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, yeah, uh, Unit 39, there are moose recorded in the area that i hunt but you never see them you never see them and that same trip i was talking about the elk we look over the ridge and there's a big black dot and we're like oh somebody's cow got out nope full-blown cow moose just sitting there you know full belly getting ready to drop her calf just up in the mountains just chilling we uh we we sat there and it was me my hunting buddy and a friend that i work with and we we sat there and watched this moose for probably an hour just kind of blown away that we're looking at a moose in this area at this time of day. It, there's something, something pretty, my, my usual hunting buddy, his name is Trey and he gets super pissed when he hunts with me because we never see our target animal, but we always see something cool and he's, he's in for it for the food. He, he loves to fill his freezer and stuff. He, he texts me, he goes, I'm going hunting without you this weekend. I was like, why? He goes, I'm hungry. <laughs> and he, wants to kill a bear. he wants to kill a bear. So he's going without me. Pretty upset about it, but I'll get over it. I'm sure. Yeah. We'll kiss him up later. You'd be funny though. It's like you, you go out, he goes out, but you tag out and he's, and it's like, I saw another bear, but looks like you decided to go do it yourself. Oh yeah. Like when we split up. So where this started, where this started was we were mule deer hunting last year and we didn't see a damn thing together. And we finally said, all right, you go over that Ridge. I'll go over this Ridge. But if we hear a shot, we'll go to the other. Not 45 minutes into walking later, I hear kaboom and uh, you know it's that swack that that thud after you hear a rifle hit an animal and i was like this motherfucker and we i walk over and he it, it's it, it was a freezer filler so the last little bit of the season you know it was a legal buck but nothing nothing to brag about and he was like i got him i got him he was he was ecstatic and he was like all right from now on whenever i'm trying to kill something you just gotta walk away from me <laughs> <laughs> I was so pissed, man. But yeah, that's that's been our running joke between us. It's just let me go, let me step back a few hundred yards, and you'll kill something. Isn't that something? You know, which you always do in the, in the future. In the, in the future, what you could do is just like let him get about fifty yards out ahead of you. You just kind of walk slowly behind him, and hopefully he'll <laughs> see something. It's like all of a sudden he hears you go off, and it's like motherfucker, you got it, <laughs> <laughs> man. He. 
he he's one of the best marksmen I've ever met in my life. This dude, he can he can drive nails at a couple hundred yards. He's he's a really good marksman. I've never seen him miss other than with a shotgun, but we we all miss with a shotgun. And he this man has killed more animals than I can count. This guy, I try to get him on the podcast. Like I try to get him, but unfortunately he had to go on a work trip down to Salt Lake. So fortunately he couldn't join us, but he is a he's a monster in the woods man, and super knowledgeable. He's the, he's the reloading guy. Uh, I have a reloading press and stuff in my room. We make some pretty, pretty amazing rounds for our hunting rifles and our, our just sharpshooting rifles that we play around with. And he, you can name around and he'll just fire off the specs, like the velocity and everything like that. I think he's a little bit on the spectrum. You know how like some some people on the spectrum are really into trains and shit like that. He's really into this. <laughs> yeah, he's but great guy. I I've, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade him for the world. Great hunting partner. Do you, you guys serve together then, or is he uh, older than you or something? We serve together. Oh, okay. Yeah, we serve together. So now down in Texas, let's 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 go go down a few hundred miles. So in Texas, what was what what was one of the some of the first animals that you got to hunt growing up? So growing up, it was whitetails. Uh, when I turned eight, uh, my dad bought me a two forty three breakover little hunting rifle, and it couldn't. And we sat in a blind on my grandpa's property that was up in the air, like up in uh, we called him a tower stand. I don't know if there's any kind of other vocabulary that you guys use, but it's basically just a, a box in the air. And it's, uh, you're, we're probably 30 feet in the air and we're looking over this big oat field that my grandfather planted over the year. And your first, first animal was a doe. And I remember, I remember my dad just sitting in there freezing his ass off. My dad was more of a city boy than my mom. My, my dad got into hunting as he got older and got really good at it, but it, mainly when when he had us is when he got into hunting but before that he kind of didn't do it that much but my mom also white trash just loved to kill anything and everything because she grew up on a farm which is where we were hunting we were hunting my grandpa's my his farm and i remember sitting in there and my dad is bundled up in the same jacket that he's had for years and he's just sitting there shivering and i'm sitting there shivering and this doe walks right out into this right out to our feeder pen and in Texas, it's legal to bait your animals. And of course, as a kid, I didn't know that was unethical or whatever. So we're, we're sitting in this stand. My dad's freezing. He doesn't even notice this deer. And I got my gun up and he's like, he looks over at me. He's like, what are you doing? And about that time I squeeze off and I smoke this doe at 65 yards. My first, that was my first doe. He was super ecstatic, but he hated me for it because we had to sit in the 25 degree weather and clean this, the clean this doe. And that was, that really wasn't the, that wasn't the all call, you know, like that all inspiring moment. Like, Oh man, I, that wasn't the moment where I was like, wow, I really love hunting and stuff like that. What really got me into it was a week later we made sausage out of it. That's what really got me into the hunting and stuff is like that. And I was like, wow, that's a 243 bullet was a lot cheaper than this 60 pounds of beef. You know, just thinking about that kind of stuff. Cause all the arguments growing up with my parents and stuff was all about money and stuff like that. But I remember filling that freezer full of sausage and I was like, this is a cool way to provide. This is a really neat, interesting way to, you know, harvest an animal, process it and stuff like that. And 
I love the taste of venison. I think the taste of venison got me into hunting more than the actual hunting itself. The thrill of hunting an animal. It's, it's since changed. I've, I tried elk meat for the first time many years ago and I was like, okay, this is what it's about. Screw them. Whitetail. This is it. Uh, but we, we, as we grew up, we started taking more responsibility on the farm and realizing how much of a problem that wild boar were. And we were like, wow, this, this is, this sucks. You know, like I remember at one year, my, my grandfather lost $40,000 in one year, just oh, the damages shit. to wild boar. And that, I think it's up to like, it's up to, it's almost a billion dollars in damages in Texas across farms in Texas a billion dollars in damages a year produced by pigs and we bought four wheelers we bought spotlights all legal in texas for those of you people freaking out that i just said spotlights oh you frozen no i'm still here i hear you okay cool cool all right so we took our spotlights out we plugged them in the four wheeler and we're out there just chasing pigs down slaughtering these pigs just absolutely decimating these pigs and it was the most thrilling thing that i did as a kid we didn't have money to go to amusement parks or stuff like that but we had 20 bucks to put in the gas and then we you know chasing pigs across cut wheat fields and just that later evolved where i was like 11 or 12 my older brother got dogs and we met a lot of people in the community that also hunted pigs with dogs and we would drop these pigs off in a just drop these dogs off in a, a wooded area and they would go find the pigs and bay them up and we'd run in there with knives and a, a pit bull that we called the catch dog and he would grab the dog by the ear or the hog by the ear i'm sorry and we'd run in there and tackle it tie it up or or stab it or whatever and it was that was always just the, the best memories with my brothers and stuff like that uh when I went back home a few times ago when I went back down to Texas, I was in, you know, the local watering hole with a whole bunch of the locals. And there was one of there that we hunted with as a kid. And I was like, Hey man, how are you doing? He was like, boy, you gotten big. Last time I saw you, your twin brother was holding you down with a Bowie knife. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) And we were, we were wild, man. We were wild kids. Like we were the definition of feral feral kids like as close as you can get to being you know like tarzan that that's what we were always running around in the woods um i never really played sports i i i moved all my attention and efforts toward killing shit that was that was it running good getting on the in the john boat and setting up lines on the river man it was looking back at it now i was like wow i didn't really appreciate that as much as I did, you know, as much meat as we brought home and as much just diversity and in ecology that we had down south. But it really makes me appreciate it more now that I live in Idaho where there ain't shit there. There's a lot of rules and regulations over what you can hunt and fish and stuff like that. You can't just set up a trot line along the river. You know, you're going to end up catching a sturgeon and getting the fine that's worth more than my house. So it's uh I really I really miss that kind of freedom. I miss that kind of uh hanging out with my brothers, those memories and stuff like that. Those were those were definitely some good times, you know. I really wish you can realize they were the good old days while you were in them. 
I guess. I it's one of those things too. It's like I uh, heck, I had a realization too. It's like I'm for me right now. Like I've never really I, I've, I've traveled around the country, but it's like I always seem to come back to home, like the Midwest, whether it be Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and. I'm. I feel like I'm living my my good old days right now because I'm traveling around. I'm getting to meet and greet a whole bunch of people and such, and I'm I'm looking forward to this upcoming hunting season. So it's like I'm mean, like I feel like I'm actually right where I want to be now. It's like I want to capture more of those experiences like you did. And I'm, I'm grateful that we don't have the hog problems that the South has, but. You know, I'm appreciative now that we're starting to see like the dog culture come back where we're starting <laughs> to see a lot more people run dogs down all all throughout the country down south, you know, from Arizona all the way out to Florida. Like people really, really actually paying attention to what dogs can do, what really bring different species back to life. So there's a lot of appreciation for that. And we also live like we have some of the best turkey season around, best whitetail around too as well. Elk is hit or miss, you know, what well, was recently with Wyoming with their drought issues and such. I mean, they cut. Was it ten thousand tags from from their lottery? I didn't see that, but I I wouldn't be surprised. I know they cut Roosevelt tags from uh, California all this year. Like well, wouldn't surprise me I, that I didn't know about. But then again, it's like it's it's California and Oregon. All the like you, I don't know if you've heard about this, but you have IP thirteen. It's it was on the docket last year, but they were due to the massive outcry. They they were managed to take it off the bill or off the, off the docket. Now it's back on again, but the next election isn't for two more years, but what it is, it goes after hunting, fishing, self, uh, self survival, even animal husbandry too, as well. So if you were big into AI, like artificial insemination, they're going to try to get rid of all that stuff, but they're, they're going to, they made the announcement now and they're hopefully that nobody's going to pay attention to that here in two years. Well, you know, with everything that's going on, it's, it's, it's difficult, but the ones like us, like the ones that are actually really paying attention to it. We're going to be on, on top of, but yeah, it's, because of the drought and, and what's going on with the river systems and such, like because of lack of water and lack of watershed and snowfall and such, they're just kind of getting a, a, a jump on it. So this way, then they're not going to decimate their population because we could see a massive drought this year and see a, a lot of die off because of the lack of water and the lack of foliage for them to eat, especially with speed goats and such as well. So I, I, I can appreciate the forward thinking on that. So this way, then we can, hopefully well you and your 30s or 40s and me and my 60s have an opportunity to get back out there and hunt something you know man that's that's something scary to think about is you know they're trying to get rid of this artificial insemination but they don't have a problem giving young kids uh castration uh castration drugs because they want to oh, decide yeah. they want to be a girl that day you oh, know? yeah that's right it's a uh, Lepruan, Lepruan. Yeah. It was like they got a massive lawsuit back in like 2003 for like over 800 million. Nobody remembers that, but yeah, it's basically legal castration. But they don't want to tell your kids that, and you know, it's very disgusting what's going on because nobody, there's no real long-term studies from it. Once you watch uh, "What Is a Woman," that documentary by Matt Walsh, it really kind of puts you in perspective. It's like we really don't know the long-term effects about some of these things that we're doing to these children, and. Dr. Deborah So, she was on Dr. Jordan, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, or no, he was, well, she was on there as well on her podcast, but also on Joe Rogan. But she was talking about that there's an uptick in females, the young young kids between the between oh, 11 to 16, and all of a sudden they get a whole bunch of popularity. Now she feels that there's it's gonna it's gonna bite it's gonna have a a, a dramatic devastating effect because now all these kids are no longer get the attention that they thought they were now they're just blending into the pack 
but they've done all this body manipulation or, or mutilation that they don't know what to do afterwards. It's uh, the, her podcast is called Wrong Speak, and mm-hmm. she she dubbed it she named it that because of 1984 because what she because she got out of academia because of what they're trying to push. It's like if you had a if we were trying to do a study, you already had to have your narrative and your goal already picked out before you began your 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 study. So it's like it's it's really kind of uh, far fetched. Then you learn kind about backer, John, didn't it? Yeah, then just... you learn about John Money, and then you offer also John uh, or no Alfred Henny Ken, Kinney. Those two absolutely horrible human beings, horrible human beings. They even made a movie after me. You know, Liam Neeson started and played him, and he was the one that actually molested young young infants all the way down to five months old. And it's like page like thirty five in his book where it talks about what the um, I'm looking for the spectrum of orgasms and all that fun stuff. It's very, dis- it's very disturbing. And the book, the book has been de- debunked, but what it, what they did is he used pedophiles and stuff like that from pre for prisons and such. And that's where he bases his, uh, study off of. And it's like, Oh man, that's just disgusting. Hey man, you are, this is a hunting podcast. So we're going to see if we can implement a pedophile hunting season in the United States. We'll see if we can get that legislation passed. Oh, that would be fantastic. No bag limit, nothing like that. You could just dump them in a ditch. That'd be great. You know, that would uh, be something that would definitely, definitely change the the perspective that's going on right now. And it would definitely clean up the streets and such like that. Uh, uh, there was a. The, t- the, the problem was we wouldn't have a Congress anymore if we did that. <laughs> It'd be a bit of an issue. I've talked about that too, like with, uh, with John Walsh or what's his name? The guy that did um, uh, To Catch a Predator. The reason why that show is no longer on because they caught a DA and stuff like that. And he killed, and he uh, he Epstein or he unalived himself, unfortunately, but he got caught, and that's how it goes. And now there's there's been I've been Good. seeing on social media that there's been a few other people that are catching people, but basically they're not going after them. They're they're just allowing the cops to to take care of the rest. They're just like, hey, we're doing this, and you're not type scenario. But oh. you're right though. We're gonna run into a a senator or a senator's aide. Yeah, that's yeah, trouble. Like I've, I've seen those people on TikTok where they're just like, hey, man, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, you're here to meet a 13-year-old girl? And then they just, you know, the cops are right behind them. We're like, just hell yeah, man. Just mm-hmm. keep doing that shit, man. I wish I could hope there's like places they can send, get donations and stuff like that to keep doing what they're doing. That's like one of the, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, like do like a Patreon forum or something just to kind yeah. of keep things going for that, uh, that type of uh, attitude. But anyways, yeah. Getting back into our actual hunting aspect of it all here, man. Uh, yeah. So, so when you were hunting whitetails, like they you know all the exotic animals that are in Texas, I take they're all on, on, on big fence, big ranch operations. Well, that used to be the case. It used to be the case before I was born. There were um, a lot of, we've seen a, a real rise in fallow deer and axis deer in particular over in the hill country of Texas, uh, axis deer especially are everywhere. They're becoming as common as whitetails. Really? And yeah, they're uh, in a lot of places like uh, your your Lano. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the area of Texas, but I was talking to an older gentleman in Lano who was talking about he used to see maybe one or two axis deer a year. Now it's up in the hundreds where he's seeing. Just, really? scattered across that kind of hill country and stuff which is really weird because they come from like india region which is not the same same ecosystem as where they're at but they're doing really well and thriving in that area they're also seeing a big jump in javelinas which is really interesting a javelina is one of the only native 
pork kind of thing in the United States. I'm familiar they, with them. That's yeah. on my bucket list because I know it's popular in New Mexico and in Arizona. Yeah, and also in Texas, uh, javelinas are they're way less invasive than the wild boar, but boy, do they stink. They stink. There's a reason why they call them skunk pigs. Man, they are foul. Um, I actually shot one with a slingshot one time. Okay. So we were hunting mule deer in West Texas. It was me, my grandfather, and my twin brother. And me and my twin brother walked down this hill, and it was it was a pretty hot day in the middle of December. And we're we're looking down this this very steep valley covered in rocks and thorn bushes and stuff like that. And I have a I have a slingshot, and I put little pebbles in it, and I throw them over the into the gorge to see if I can spook anything up, just so we can get you know kind of a head count or see if we can spook a deer up to get a shot on. And I'm shooting these slingshots, and I hear rustling next to us, and there's a group of javelinas running by me and my brother and i was like oh go time and i pick up a little rock and i i smoked this javelina granted it wasn't the javelina i was aiming at but i smoked him at about 40 yards with a fucking slingshot and it just like you can hear the and they just they just scatter it was really neat and interesting um i haven't had too much experience hunting them myself uh a lot of spotting them more than anything but they they were never were my target species when i was out hunting um my brother and my grandfather were really big into the mule deer but it, for me it was all about the barbary sheep you know climbing up the mountains shooting these big all dead uh you guys go to my instagram later i'm sure it'll be in one of these links uh you can see a lot of pictures of me with a barbary sheep i actually have one here hanging on my wall um it, this was this year's this December before me and my wife had our wedding reception, we went out to West Texas and went and hunt some Barbary sheep. Isn't that how you want to spend your weekend? Uh, every woman wants to spend her weekend up in the high desert of West Texas, just filthy chasing dirty ass goats up the mountains. So hey, the women like that are a rare find and they get bigger rocks, they get better guns. Oh, yeah, facts. Yes. Facts. facts, I, try, yeah. I try to take care of mine, but she's very high maintenance. I don't know what the deal is. Um, <laughs> Uh, Barbary sheep for me was kind of a, I like the challenge. I like, I like, the, I've always liked the mountains. I've always, I guess being from uh, central Texas, you're not, I don't see much topography and stuff. So when I moved, when we started going out to West Texas, hunting these mule deer and Barbary sheep, seeing the mountains, seeing something that, Hey, that thing runs up those mountains all day. If I can outdo that animal and take him home, in a cooler, I'm the baddest motherfucker around here. And that's how I think it really originally started because we were going up this mountain that we called All Dad Mountain. All Dad is okay. another word, Barbary sheep. Um, and it's where we saw them all the time, but it's just sheer rock faces, just these huge cliffs. And one side is kind of sloped, but not, not too sloped. And it was about about two hours before sundown and about two hours before last light. And my grandpa, we, we saw some on the other side of the hill and we drove around it and we couldn't really see him anymore. And I was like, I'm gonna climb up that mountain and see if I can kill me a barber. And my grandpa was, of course, he, he thought he'd teach me a lesson, you know, all right, go for it, get after it. And I went up there and I just, I intersected. I, I met him at the right place. Just, 
right place, right timing. I picked out the biggest one in the group, sat behind a yucca plant, and I smoked him. 100, 120 yards, smoked him, laid him down right in his tracks. And Nice. Yeah, with a seven mag. And it was the biggest one I've ever killed was actually the first one I've ever killed. He was 33 inches from inside of his head all the way down to his horn tip. He was 33 Wow, inches. that's huge. Yeah, he was a monster. This one I have on my wall is 30. So he, this 30 from inside to outside. And it was amazing. Just like watching this animal go down. I was, I don't get buck fever that often. But the hardest I've ever got buck fever was shooting that Barbary sheep. I was, I was trembling. I looked like an epileptic, man. I was, I was, I was so, my grandfather said he could hear me screaming from down the hill. Like, and anyways, I processed him and I, I started carrying him back down. And my grandpa, he's, I'm carrying two front shoulders. Well, one front shoulder and one back shoulder. The first front shoulder was, oh, it was, it was soup. And I'm carrying the head just to prove that I got a, a big one, you know, and I'm on this metal frame backpack, just stumbling down this hill, dying of exhaustion. And I, I bring it down and I got this, this Barbie sheep head just hanging over my shoulders. And I'm, I'm 14 at the time. I'm just a young buck. So it weighed so much more than like, I can probably carry that whole sheep out now, but back then that was a lot of weight. And my grandpa was like, we're not eating that. I was why I was like, why are we killed it? We're eating it. He was no, dude, that's a Barbary sheep. They're a pest out here. And he was like, he was like, you can take a chunk home with you to the hotel and we'll see if you want to eat it after you cook it. You can cook it however you want. And I cooked it like how my dad cooked steak. When I tell you I would rather cut the bottom of my hiking boots out and eat it, it was foul. It was really? the most disgusting, gamiest piece of leather. Like, I cooked it medium rare. Like, just a real nice pink center. I did really well. And it was, it wasn't it. It was, it tasted like the goat smells. And it was awful. It was awful. From, from, from then on out, I because we went every year. Every December, we went back to, from the time I was 14 to, to last year, we went every year. And I had, I'd never, I'd never eaten the meat. I never eaten the meat. We always threw it by the side of the road where they patrol for coyotes out there. There's just like, the only thing that's going to eat them is coyotes and buzzards. And I was like, <laughs> all right, get after it. But it was still a really cool trophy hunt, but almost morally questioning, like why I'm hunting these animals if I'm not taking it home, right? I'm, I'm only keeping the head. It's everything that I fight against down here. I just did on an invasive species. Which, you know, how invasive is the species if he's been there for 300 years? You know True. what I mean? Yeah. Like how invasive, yeah. like it's almost like the Persian Ibex in New Mexico. Is it really invasive if they've been there for, and they've been in the U.S. longer than my family has. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but it's still an amazing experience climbing up these mountains, conquering these mountains and taking this animal. I just wish there was. I wish they were more edible. <laughs> my liking. Um, the mule deer though, the, uh, I've, I've taken two mule deer off that property and it's been every time it's mule deer. Doesn't surprise me. Tastes a little sagey, tastes a little gamey, still mule deer. It's delicious. Yeah. I've, I've started incorporating. I don't know if you're really big into like the food processing part of part of things. I'm sure you are, 
Oh yeah, I, I, have, I have several videos of me breaking down, uh, not not breaking down a deer, but actually breaking down a piece of meat and then getting it prepped ready for to, to brine and to smoke it. I've, I've I've really gotten into more of the sausage part of anything, like mixing it with with boar. Okay. Like especially venison. Not so much my elk. None of my elk gets turned into sausage. If <laughs> that that all goes directly into the tummy. But the the venison and wild boar will get mixed into like a sausage together and we'll put a little bit of just um, regular pin race boar, uh, pin race hog in with the boar just to get a little less of a gamey taste and stuff like that. And I've always found that's a lot better because my wife hates venison. I never tell her when we're eating venison, all of our breakfast sausage is venison, all of our, everything that we, like we eat that's, you know, not in a store-bought package is some sort of venison. It's, it's just normally mixed with something a little bit. I won't tell her what it is and she doesn't know the difference, but as soon as I bring out an elk steak, she's like, "Mm," you know, Oh no, an elk steak. I don't really want it and stuff like that. But if I hide it from her, she'll never know the difference. I don't know. She's just a picky eater, man. It must be it must have some type of an incarnation of something that why she has this 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 uh, distaste for the meat because it's like it's absolutely delicious, especially yeah. when it's done right. I think she grew up on it. That's one of her primary sources of food as she was growing up. So she just doesn't like the taste. She didn't. I think I think because her dad is a hunting guide. What well, was oh, was okay. a hunting guide. So that that's all they ate was mule deer growing up. Mule deer and bear. It's so it's very it's very interesting seeing the way like she like I'll make a like a flank steak and gravy kind of thing. Just, you know, really southern style it up, season it really well and just cook it really well. And she'll she'll eat it like it's no, nobody's business. But as soon as I tell her it was, you know, X, Y, Z, she's like, oh, and I think it's because her dad shot animals and then made her butcher them as a kid. So it's completely de-romanticized the whole little process, but I'm slowly warming her back up to it. Um, her favorite meal that I cook now is the Turkey. I take, uh, the Turkey breast that we shot right up the mountain, 45 minutes away from us. Um, and I'll season them like fried chicken and I'll just fry them like chicken. That's one of her favorite meals is the fried Turkey. So I'm, I'm starting to get her warmed up to it, but, um, so we get per spring season, you get two turkeys, two turkeys, we tagged out and emptied our freezers within the turkey season. Oh, wow. We, we shot, processed, and ate the turkeys before turkey season was over. <laughs> That's epic. Yeah. And, man, I'm, I couldn't – I wonder what a full 30-pound turkey is, is right now. I wonder what a full turkey is, like a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. I wonder what that's going for right now. I have not looked yet, but that is something I'm kind of curious about it because I'm almost I want to smoke one. I've been I've been on this kick about smoking different meats and stuff like that. But I think it's like kind of the same thing with you with you and uh sausage. You know, it's just something that you're really good at and you get a lot of praise for it, but you want to try something new with it because it's such a, a versatile method that mm-hmm. you, you it everybody likes it. Yeah, everyone likes sausage. And not only is it like sausage, like you can get a breakfast sausage recipe, you can get a dinner sausage recipe, you can get a hot dog recipe, and you can get a summer sausage recipe. You can get summer sausage recipes without cheese, without jalapenos, and you can just really, really diversify. And hand to hand with sausage is jerky. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you know, you can get one of those little, little like basically a meat cl- 
hawk gun. Yes, I have squeeze one. Out, yes, you, you squeeze out your little jerky links. And it. I've always found it, you know, it's a long process, especially when you kill a larger animal, stuff like that. When you're processing 300 pounds of sausage in two or three days, it's it's exhausting. The whole smokehouse is rolling 24-7. It's just, ugh. But it's something about that two days of work will feed if need be will feed me for a year yes you know you just have so much meat so much quantity of meat and it's not the best you know it's not i don't have freaking frank's hot dogs you know but it's something that i cook i killed i processed i seasoned and i made and it's it's another step of that conquering that i was talking about conquering this mountain conquering this animal i'm conquering society because guess what i didn't go to the grocery store for any of this shit except the casings i know there's going to be people out here just like oh you you got the casings and all that yeah shut the fuck up all right <laughs> like let me be proud of myself haters and just you know you you conquer it's something about being a little more self-sufficient each day it's being a little more successful each day and i and it's really really fulfilling shooting and killing and processing an animal for me yeah i think that's where i've I've leaned more towards myself i'm i never was much of a big horn hunter my dad was never a horn hunter you just like to fill in the feet filling the freezer with meat and such and when we were when my brother and i got older and stuff like that we we've we got to the point where we we ate venison so frequently that we didn't want to eat beef we we didn't want to eat it because it's like the he him and his friends were such they would always party hunt for the sh- shotgun season or, or muzzleloader, depending on how his balance is PTO time and such. And that's what we eat a lot of. And they'd always party hunt. So it always wouldn't be, won't be surprised to have 40, 40 to 80 pounds of meat in a season. If, if they were, if the deer were really sitting pretty good. Cause in Iowa, it's like, we do have a really good uh, population of whitetail, but it's like, it all, if you have to really look at the state to understand where majority of the, the meat of uh, or the deer are for whitetail, you're looking Pretty much, if you could follow I thirty five east mm-hmm. and anything west of that, like getting to all the way up to Sioux Falls, all in that area, it's pretty much brown as down. But we had a couple of uh, horrible seasons for cold, cold winters and such, and just didn't give them anywhere to to find coverage. So the, the it's still been kind of a, a slow recovery process because you have to uh, incorporate predation and all the car accidents and stuff, and it's been difficult. Now we we I've seen constant all kinds of dead deer. But the worst part is when you come across a, a, a fawn. It's a, it's mm. a little it's a little it gets you because it's like you don't mind too much of a mature doe, but it's like a young one, like a young fawn. It's like you want to at least see them to experience the whole thing going on. Plus, we all have a, a sentimental connection to to babies and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's human nature. You know, mm-hmm. the sentimental sentimental connection to babies for sure. And you're talking about sixty to eighty pounds of meat, and it's mm-hmm. kind of wild to me because growing up in Texas. One hog hunt, one good successful hog hunt, like with, you know, you got two or three people out there with their dogs or you two or three people on full wheels and stuff can render seven or eight pigs a night. If you, you know, a really successful night, you got 600 pounds of meat. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about two, 300 pound plus wild boar. And that's one of the things that like, I think that a lot of people in the South will, if shit hits the fan, like, those are the people that don't know me or haven't watched the podcast that we did with Jim Bob. This, this is what I'm about. I'm about the prepping sort of thing. And the people down in South will absolutely thrive off of, off of pigs alone. 
they're you know you can't ex- you can't make the motherfuckers go extinct. We've tried. So these animals are just so they're producing so much meat, just like hanging around the just being them. It, I think that's why a lot of people in the south are like survival will be a lot easier down there is because one shot and there's four or five families are eating that day. You know. Oh yeah, hundred percent. We could see the same thing happen here too. If a far, if a pig farm or something like that has uh, a possibility of getting threatened or getting shut down or it can't hold it, like like just let it all out and loose, and we could we we would have a whole headache up here too as well. So it, we could really change the dynamic of the food supply really quickly and such. When if if we ever decide to do something like that, it's just right now it's like we haven't seen a need to change it yet, but we haven't really been we haven't seen a major. Uh, uh, food shortage since the Great Depression up here, so we don't know what poverty feels like or what it feels like to be meal to meal. Well, fasten your seatbelts, bud. Here yeah, comes twenty twenty three. Yeah, I know. I like I I was homeless for a period of time, so it's like there's sometimes where I didn't know where I get my meal from because back in two thousand eight, when that when that housing market crashed, I was in Phoenix, and so so we got hit with the brunt of it. I mean, I couldn't even get a damn job at work at McDonald's. So it's like I had two options here in July: either I'll be homeless on the streets or go up north. So I just decided to pack up at two o'clock in the morning and start mark, marching my way out of town, and managed to get picked up and went up from there. So it's like it's it's one of those things where I understand the 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 um, struggles when it comes down to it. Like where I'm at today was not what it was ten years ago. Yeah. And, and, and fortunately for me, I haven't had that experience. You know, like I've, I've never lived in a, a time where yeah, I don't know what I'm going to eat. And like, I've met a lot of people in my career that have joined the military just for that reason. You know, they have, you know, man, I was tired of being homeless. I joined the military to get, get away from that guaranteed housing, free food. Sounds good to me. And it's like, it really puts you and knocks you, it humbles you for sure. Cause Compared to them, I'm a spoiled brat, man. <laughs> I, I'm a spoiled brat, and it, it really amazes me humans' abilities to survive. Yeah, it humans, is like, just to thrive and stuff like that. And it really worries me for the future as well. Is just like what's coming next? What's what's going to happen? Are we going to be okay? Is the American people going to be okay? Are we going to be able to pull out of this? You know, and it's getting it's really scary, but. The more that I see the way things are going, I understand why my great grandmother gave me an orange for Christmas every year. You know, that, that's because in the 30s, when she was a kid, that was the best gift someone can give you was an orange or an apple. Man. And it's just like, wow, holy cow. Mm-hmm. What's going to like, am, am I going to buy my my niece that I have coming in a few months? Am I going to buy her an orange for Christmas one year? Or, like, what's what's going to happen. It's, it's really, really terrifying, especially with as little rain they got going that's happening all over the country where everyone's talking about we're in severe drought and stuff like that is and the food shortage, supply chain shortage, COVID, all these things just, just firing off like rockets that are just, it, it makes you realize how fragile society really is, I guess. And mm-hmm. that's, I think people like us that have, a lot of experience hunting and stuff, we soon could be providers for a community. But at the, at the same time, being a provider for the community is great, but is there any coming back after being a provider for the community? Because if you're eating, if you're shooting deer off the mountain and out of the past, any, if, 
it's brown is down kind of that kind of theory. If ha, is there any recovery from that? As much as our population has grown since the last Great Depression, where they were they were shooting deer to eat eat and stuff like that. Is there any coming back? Is our deer population going to suffer? Is our animal population going to suffer entirely because of a because of a national food shortage or the Great Depression? Is there going to be you know a lot of poaching happening? Is are people just going to throw the rules right out the window? Like what? What could we look forward to? You know, like I wish I had the answers to those questions. Like what's going to happen? Yeah, getting to that perspective there, most of the people that went through that shit are all dead. And so we don't have yeah. that leadership anymore. And that's why I think uh, like what, what, with why the, the VA treats our veterans so poorly is because if a well-managed, well healthy veteran, a vet population, they'd probably overthrow the government because they know what, they, they know what they're capable of. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, I think that's what it was, comes down to. But what's what we're missing? We don't have that expertise anymore. Like I, I did a podcast, well, I just released one today with um, – uh, David Garrett, but I, I told him it's like I, if if shit goes down, there's military men around me that I know. Is that I will I will make sure I will I will be the ammo bitch for him because I want to make sure that ammo's rounds will go down range and will hit their target. Especially when it comes down to today's society, I'm a pretty good shot, but there's a there's people out there that are far better than I am, and so that's uh, where uh, where I'd be at. Man, I'm in the Air Force. All the military people I know can't shoot broads out of a barn. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it usually goes. But I, I see if if it all depends on how if, if this this either this great reset or great awakening will happen. If we have this great awakening, we'll probably see a re, redesigning of their infrastructure here. We'd probably revert back to the fifties, where where we take care of our more major communities instead of shipping everything off out to major major supplies. Now, when you have a Chicago or New York or Panama or or um, an LA, those will become war zones, and then and oh. it's. And it's just, it will be basically a massive prison type scenario where everybody is going to be struggling to get out. Luckily for us, we live in a smaller area that we do, like you up in Idaho here in Wisconsin. Our biggest community is in Milwaukee. And it's like, well, they can eat, they can eat themselves type scenario. And yeah, it's Boise is 40 minutes away. Board in Boise, unlike most major cities, is uh, full of fucking rednecks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think. Uh, I think for sure those those bigger cities and stuff are going to suffer a lot more than rural communities because rural communities are as much they get shit on by those bigger cities. Those rural communities always take care of each other. Yeah, they you know, do. You, communities can, are. I was going to say I, was, I can I can I comment on that because my dad lives in a small community. He's seventy nine years old or sixty nine years old, and his community and everybody around there, everybody takes care of everybody. Like he, he, if somebody needs to help watch his house or somebody that did, somebody's there's somebody in the area that needs their dogs taken care of, taken care of. Somebody's their horses taken care of, the cow taken care of. Like they're, they've all known each other since the fifties and sixties. My dad was born in 53. And it's like, he didn't know he was blind until he was in, until he was in school. They didn't have running water until the the sixties and stuff like that. I mean, their outhouse when he was growing up was 20 feet outside. So it was like this is Iowa, so it's fucking cold outside. So you you're really plan your your trips outside very carefully. Yeah. Do you really have to go to the bathroom? Yeah, exactly. Can I wait until the sun's up a little bit and I can see where I'm walking? Type <laughs> scenario. 
So it's like some of the people that were really impoverished are still around, but that's where we need to really take advantage of their knowledge. I've noticed in this area here, I've seen an uptick in canning, which is a, which is a good thing to have, good thing to see because there's people out there that are, that know that shit is going to happen. And food hoarding is not a bad thing. It's just like you you gotta you gotta understand when when you were if you were poor ever once, it's like you know you have to figure out how to to survive. And food is the first thing you need to secure and go from there. Everything else is downhill. I actually canned an elk roast this year. Um, this year I canned an elk roast for the, this is my first experience canning. I didn't grow up canning and nothing like that. Uh, my grandma used to do it, but I always stole shit from her and, you know, and so in exchange for mowing the grass, I got, you know, jellies and stuff like that, but never really canned any. And I canned an elk roast and I, I cracked one open the other day. It was like, all right, it's, it's been in here for a couple months. Let's, let's see what's happening. And cracked it open, warmed it up and put it over some mashed potatoes and, I'll be all right with that. I'll yeah. be all right. <laughs> all right. It, granted, it is only about 20 pounds of meat that's canned, but that's 20 pounds a lot of people don't have, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and that's another problem that I have with Idaho is the limited foraging, you know, the very limited foraging, very limited natural berries and st- uh, fruits and stuff like that. We're down in Texas, there's peach trees and blueberries and I'm sorry, dewberries or as y'all call them blackberries, I think blackberries everywhere. Like you've got all these sorts of, it may be just because I grew up down there. I know all the edibles and I don't necessarily know all the edibles up here, but that you can go outside and pick you a meal from the ground in Texas up here in the high desert. Good luck. Unless yeah. you, unless you can eat a sagebrush, good good luck. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was hitchhiking, when I wasn't going through Oregon, so I was going after blackberries and raspberries. There, you could find them rather readily available in some cases, but you just gotta you gotta better pick and spot the foliage and kind of understand what it looks like and what how it's been formed and in the terrain and such. And you you get used to seeing that when you're hungry. And it wasn't uncommon for me. There was a few times where that was my meal was was all berries. Man. Yeah, it's it's amazing what you what you can be, which how resourceful you. It's like, and when you go through such a traumatic experience like that, you you tend not to look at material things, but you look at more what is more valuable to me. Like for me, it's it's a bow. For me, it's a gun, and it's like, an, and then a tent. And I can I can I can I can rebuild. Like I've mm-hmm. been poor, I've been uh, on the streets. So it's like I can rebuild as long as long as I have means to get me that fishing pole, or even well, I, I don't even need a fishing pole. I just give myself a um, a nice strong stick, put some line on it. Let's go. There you go. There you go. And that's uh, one of the things that I have romanticized recently is doing the alone show. Have you seen that show? Yeah, I've seen that show. Oh, my goodness. I want to do that show so bad. But I know, I know as soon as I'm away from that, my, my kitchen, I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to get hangry as hell and I'm going to starve to death and I'm going to tap out. <laughs> yeah, that's, the, the funny thing is when I watched the first episode and, I, and the guy that won it was on Rogan, he had no idea that he won until somebody showed up at his doorstep. Really? Yeah, that's how that's how you know you win. Uh, oh, at least maybe his show. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it's the same one, maybe not, but it's no, amazing. You're talking about like they do a health and wellness check and he's just talking to the camera and stuff like that. And their significant other like comes up behind them and they're just like, hey, you won. And they just break down. Oh, my goodness. That one hunting guide out of Alaska won one of the seasons and he made that rock house and he killed a musk ox with a knife. 
Wow. What a savage. Homeboy, homeboy killed a musk off musk ox with a knife. I'm surprised they didn't have to carry his ass out with a forklift to carry the weight of his balls out of that freaking <laughs> wilderness. Good lord. Like I've been I've been pretty close to some big game animals that, you know, wild big game animals, but nothing like hand-to-hand combat with them. And this dude's out here just butchering a musk ox with a fucking knife. Man. It's impressive. amazing. It's amazing what starvation will do to you, I guess. That's just, I couldn't imagine. My, my thought is, though, it's like if you're going on these, on these shows, they must have all the permits or tags or whatever is necessary for them to, to, to hunt and survive off the land. Because if they're not, it's almost be a version of poaching. Yeah, see, I, when, you re- when you read it, they put up subtitles like all the game here was harvested legally according to whatever state or region they're in and it's like okay so they paid for muskox tags or like how how that's like does does everyone get a muskox tag or that one guy that killed a moose with a with a just Ball a string arrow, yeah, bow, yeah. Mm-hmm. killed a moose like he had to have an alaskan moose tag and those aren't cheap you know <laughs> and, not. and according to the moose he shot it wasn't a legal moose anyway so Oh wow! So it was actually like, it was was it a bull or was it a cow? It was a bull. It was a it was a bull moose. But uh, Alaska has very strict moose harvesting yeah, regulations do. and stuff. And you know you're talking to, they have to be a, I think it's uh, sixty two inches. Oh, I thought sixty two inches. Okay, I thought 62. it was fifty, but it could be depending on the region because Alaska's fucking huge. But yeah, Alaska is fucking huge, and I could be wrong. I'm not an Alaska native, but I I was under the impression that it was sixty two inches, and this moose wasn't more than forty. Mm-hmm. like and that's on a good day he was 40 you know that was giving him a few inches so i was like is that really legal or like they just pay the fine and skip over it like what's going on with that mm-hmm. but that dude ate a moose like an entire moose the time he was there mm-hmm. and he but that's what one that's what allowed him to win because he got that moose early on but he also secured um fire shelter and water mm-hmm. fire shelter water and food mm-hmm. just that's I don't know. I think I could win it. I think I could win it if I just if it, I don't know. I'd have to be a little bit more poor than I am now. You know, <laughs> just a little bit more motivation to like, oh, you have it's either this or be homeless when you get back home. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you're still in the military, so you won't be able to do something like that until you, until you, you rotate out. So are you going to yeah. be a lifer or are you going to be just going to do your contract and be done? Oh, no, I'm doing my contract and I'm done, man. I'm done. Uh, this life is for a lot of people, but it's not for me. Uh, uh, I like my, I, I like to be able to do what I want when I want to do it. I don't want to have to, you know, every time I take a shit, I got to call somebody and be like, Hey, I'm taking a shit. And, you know, I, just, <laughs> I, I like, I want to be, I want to be pretty independent and stuff. So I've been in four years, which, you know, I'm sure some people listen to this and be like, Oh, four years. What a pussy, you know, like, you know, this, this, this just ain't for me. And I got two more years left of my contract and I'm gone. I don't know what I'm going to do after. And it's really stressing me out lately, but I'll figure it out. Well, I think there's, there's, there's plenty of people out there that can help you help a guy focus on what they're going to be doing on. And just and on top of this too, you get, since you got two more years, you could, I recommend reading uh, the 12 rules of life, uh, think and grow rich uh, by Dale, by Napoleon Hill. Cause he, cause Napoleon Hill, that book I'm reading, I'm actually listening to it and reading it right now through, through my work. And 
it really allows you to figure like you could set goals. You can figure out what you everything you go there. Like in chapter seven, there is a thirty question checklist of um, self um, sabotage, and it kind of lets you go through and like read through them and, and answer them truthfully because this is your life. And the the truer the answer you can get, the more it will dictate what you can do in the future. Because now it's like, well, I recognize that procrastination is one of my issues, or uh, not thinking before I speak, or or stuff like that, where you can really kind of figure out what am I doing wrong and like, how can I improve myself and get myself ready? And plus it's like, when you're free now, it's like, it's another opportunity to start fresh, start anew. So it's like, you have everything at your fingertips. Now it's just figuring out what makes sense for you and what do you want to do? And that's like where I'm at right now. It's like, I've taken, it's taken me a long time to get to the work, uh, work life balance that I've been searching for. Cause I do also the podcast. I do have my affiliate links and stuff like that, but people buy. So that helps establish a, a little bit of residual income that kind of pays for my hobbies and stuff. Um, I also have BioLife where I donate plasma. And that's a hundred bucks a week right there. So if you live in a college town that has that, that's great supplemental income from there right there. And they never, there's, they're recession proof. They're, they're pandemic proof. They, they never shut down during the pandemic. So it's like, they're still going strong to this day. Any, any of those donation centers, then you can, then you can work on figuring out like, if you want to be a government guide, but then again, it's like from what I've heard people that turn a passion into a business, a job, they tend to get burnt out and they don't really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's the thing though, those uh, donation groups and stuff like that, donating plasma and stuff like that, um, at College Town is 45 minutes away. Shit, it's 100 bucks in gas just for me to get there. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. Yeah. And then on top of it, too, like you said, you before you were thinking about buying some land, like putting a, 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 a not, yeah, essentially a trailer park on it. So what is, what is, what have, what have you learned about this process? Uh, just that you got to have money to make money. And people without money trying to make money is seen very frowned upon, according to the banks. That's pretty much. <laughs> What it is. Like it's so much as a young guy, just going into something, just being like, Hey, I want to start a business. You, you get looked down upon a lot and people don't really take you seriously. And you're like, damn, like you really got to push some buttons to get to where you want to be. And I'm just starting this process and stuff like that. And we're negotiating land prices right now and stuff like that. it's with a, unfortunately it's with a friend. You know, the land is from a friend. So it's like he doesn't want to put it on the market because he doesn't want some Californian to move there. But he also doesn't <laughs> want to sell it to me because I'm going to build an RV park on it. You know, <laughs> so it's a build of it's a bit of a back and forth here, but I think it'll all work out. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. If it does, great. You know, because one of the things that me and my wife have been seriously talking about is traveling a lot when, when I get out. When I finally get my I feel like I'm getting out of prison. Uh, when, when, I, when I finally get out, I'm going to, we want to travel a lot. We want to go all across the U S and meet a lot of new people and do a lot of cool things and stuff. And I want something that where my income will, I'll, I'll make income without really doing anything. Mm -hmm. kind of, I get it. You know, like with like doing a, a remote jobs, there's nice things. There's tons of them out there. And, and if you uh, did, and if you dig through like the Google certificates, there's a, lots of ways you can make 60, 70 grand, grand a year for start. Once you go through the certificates process and you could just work see, on a laptop. Talking, I was talking about more investments kind of thing, like building an RV park, very low oh, maintenance yeah. once it gets Makes going, sense. but that continual monthly income coming from that instead of, whatever else. Oh, doing active income. Yeah. It makes perfect yeah. sense. Even uh, uh, buying a plot of land and throwing storage units on it. 
that's a genius idea because it's better than renting out, buying a, a hotel or a apartment complex because your tenants, you don't have to worry about water. You don't all you have to do is worry about electricity and you, you, you kick attendance out tenants out every month. All you do is come through the broom, sweep everything out. You're done. Yeah. That, and that's the thing though. I am in a military town. There's already 700 of those fucking storage facilities. That's, <laughs> that's done there, done gone. And like some of these storage facilities are only operating about 60% capacity or less throughout the year. You know, they've, they've built too much of them. There's too much mm-hmm. competition. Yeah. Yeah. But be, it's a, yeah, go for it. I'll be right back. Perfect. So at least, you, at least you have an idea in what you want to do when you step out of the military. Now it's just getting everything all worked out. Yeah, and that's that's the thing though. I'm so nervous with the state of the world right now. You know, jumping into something. Am, am I going to give myself enough rope to hang myself and be permanently fucked? You know, it all comes down so, to what your APR is on your interest, because that's something that's been kind of what's weighing people down. Because there's a lot of it's still kind of a seller's market, but the interest rates are kind of up there, and are you going to are you be able to make enough to uh, pay the vig? You know. Yeah, you got to pay the piper somehow, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, you, you what did you, what, did, what was your, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What is your, what is your dedication there in the, the military? Were you electronics, communications, or Ooh, weapons? Force? Weapons? Weapon guy. Yeah. I put bombs on planes. <laughs> That's always fun. So there's not much out, out, out of the military that do, does that. Unless they put start putting them on 37-37s, then I'm kind of out of a job. <laughs> yeah, no shit. I have a cousin of mine that uh, did went to school for went to the Air Force to work on work on be, be be a mechanic, and nobody's hiring right now for that particular thing. So he's just bouncing around the country painting uh, planes, some of that. And, and hindsight's twenty twenty, but it's like it almost be with this current situation, his living situation, and expenses, probably been easier just to stay in the military. Yeah, but you know. What is the Benjamin Franklin quote? If you sacrifice freedom for safety, then you deserve neither. Yeah, that's, like that. that is very yeah. true. That is a good point. But you know, we 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 live in a we live in a very interesting time. It's it's it could be very destructive or it could be very creative. It all depends on how the powers that be want to navigate the waters. I'd rather be free in a tent than caged in a house. So, oh, that's a good one. I'll drink to that one, sir. Uh, a friend of mine up here makes his own wine. Oh, boy. It's good stuff. Oh, man. It's good stuff. It's way stronger than it needs to be. You know, for a wine being 13, 14%, it's just a little too much, but it goes down so smooth. I don't know what to deal with. Right. I, I'm, a, I'm a whiskey guy. I, I have, uh, I just bought a bottle of, um, uh, uh, proper 12 uh, Irish whiskey on, on Saturday. I haven't opened it up yet. We just, uh, my buddy and I, we, we record a podcast on Fridays and we usually open up a bottle. We don't, it's one of those things where we, we drink to enjoy, not to get sideways. And so we, we have a quite the uh, library collection of different whiskeys that we like to try recommend. One of my, right now, one of my favorites is Jefferson's reserve ocean uh, whiskey. And it's runs depending on the vendor. This is why why I mentioned that because the, the whiskey itself is two hundred fifty bucks. But what makes it, why it makes it that so expensive? Because it spends nine years of its life at sea, bouncing up and down the equator, 
and it is very soft. It's very subtle and it's very smooth. And it's one of those things where you can, you can drink it real, real fast. Now, why I said it depends on the vendor is that where, where my buddy gave it to me, he gave it to me as a hospitality gift because he came up here over Memorial Day weekend. He crashed on my couch. He spent the weekend. We did some fishing. We smoked up a bunch of food, drank a lot of beer. And But as, as a thank you note, he, get, uh, he gave me a, a bottle of that. So I only paid 70 for it, which is quite remarkable. So it all comes down to your vendor. Some places, like we looked online, and one of the vendors we found was selling it for 250 But that's just because online prices, they're shipping it, it's t- tariffs and taxes and stuff like that. So. But actually, I got a guy. I got a guy that holds a bottle of Blanton's for me every month. So, so I don't think I've had that one. Blanton's bourbon, man. Yeah. Ooh, you're missing out. Now, you're is, missing out. is that found up in your area? It's it's all over the country. It's made in Tennessee. Okay. Uh, but it has little horses on it. That I don't know. I'm not a huge whiskey guy. Okay. But that's the only one I can drink. That's it. That's the only one I can sit there and put down. I'm more of a more of a wine guy, more of a margarita guy. I like okay. my fruity drinks because All right. they taste great, and I get the liquid courage enough to come on a stranger's podcast. <laughs> you know. Oh, that is very true, especially if you mix it with the right Patron. Is like I'm not a tequila fan, so but uh, but I am a rum fan. I do like my rum. Well, there's enough 1800 in those margaritas to tranquilize a horse. <laughs> Oh yeah, that eighteen hundred is is a is a go to for me. Our inaugural podcast for uh, Dosed After Dark was uh, a special edition Patron, and yeah, we drank a lot that night. We, we hey, you like, better be careful. I get to drinking more of this wine. I'm gonna get horny, and I'm gonna come after you. All right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm good thing I'm in Wisconsin. So I think your wife will probably take care, of, relieve your your pent up energy. <laughs> no, nah, she'll just beat me. <laughs> She'll bust out the, the bust out the strap on and make you your bitch. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> Call me Peggy for the night, I guess. That's hilarious. So, what do you got going on for the upcoming uh, season here? Because we know you, okay. you have bear season till July. Then, what do you got? Right. What's, what's what's coming up in September? Uh, September's elk. September's elk. Where uh, I took the whole month of September of leave. I'm burning all of my leave in September to go. Uh, me, the horses, and Trey are going to go up north, and we're going to do a month. Well, until we are tagged out, we are staying in those mountains until we are tagged out. So, ooh, that's pretty epic, man. It's going to be rough. It's going to be brutal. You know, just um, it. It could be a couple of weeks living in a tent, but it's going to be it's going to be brutal. But it's going to be fun. Then you said you also mentioned you got you're going to get after some coyotes this summer. This summer's coyotes, um, this summer I really try to focus on fishing. I try to focus on, uh, we had a lot of really nice trout streams out here. And kokanee salmon is about to start kicking back up. So kokanee salmon or landlocked salmon that are up here in the Anderson Reservoir. Super, super excited about dipping down in there and grabbing me a whole bunch of salmon, man. Because that's the cheapest salmon you'll find. You just got to pay for gas. So I guess it's about average now i guess <laughs> no kidding because uh however many gallons you burn and how many fish you catch is kind of breaking down your your cost per pound i'll sleep on that boat if i have to <laughs> you, you, you you own a boat no uh, it's a buddy of mine we always go every every year during the summer we take a few days off and just go trolling the, the reservoir looking for kokanee and every now and then we'll get a huge lake trout and stuff like that and we'll pull up on the bank and smoke it but Freezing those salmon, you you know, clean them, process them, freeze them, 
go great with a little bit of lemon pepper and some some spices, man. It's just it's salmon. It there's it's no way to other no way to explain it other than it's salmon. Right. It's delicious pink food. Yes, it is. I we did a we're doing a, a charter fishing event over here in, in the uh, in, uh, Lake Michigan again this September because I'm I didn't I didn't get a tag or anything like that. So we're a group of us. We're gonna do four of us out there. We're, we got, I have a buddy of mine that's been on my podcast a couple of times. We're gonna take out go out on his char, charter and try to bring in some more fish. Last this last year we went and we went out. It was a learning experience because none of us had any experience actually catching salmon because we don't have the gear for it. Over I live over the Mississippi so. Our biggest fish is muskie, sturgeon, and pike. Now, when you go on the other side of the state, over there, on the, over by Lake Michigan, you have so much more opportunity to catch whatever. The sturgeon fishing in Idaho is strictly uh, catch and release, but I heard sturgeon is actually pretty good if you get to eat one. But there, there is a couple of seasons that you can that you can uh, get, go after sturgeon. It's not a sought after fish. Uh, most of the people that do actually go fish for sturgeon there's like uh up by sturgeon bay here in wisconsin about two weeks where it's pretty much it takes over it's a holiday it takes over the entire mm-hmm. town and they'll go out and they'll cut uh big old slots of uh openings in the water and they'll spear them like really right? yeah they'll spear them and stuff like that and you need, you need, then they'll come up and they'll eat them and stuff like that and they'll measure them and they'll weigh them and such and yeah that's it's it's an event i haven't been to one yet but i've, I've heard it's a, a lot of fun to go to that sounds really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sturgeon up here, we we fish below the dams, like in the, the dam water and stuff. And you see these guys pulling these six-foot-long dinosaurs out of the water. And growing up in Texas, I've caught lots of alligator gar. Those don't weird me out half as much as these sturgeon do. Like, just this gray dinosaur-looking creature that comes out. with like It's just it's weird to me seeing these just these massive fish because – Every sturgeon that I've seen get pulled out of that river has been bigger than any of the alligator gar that I've caught. No shit. Yeah. Just these massive, you're watching these like deep sea tuna rods getting bent in half. Yeah. And this, this is the snake river in Idaho. And it's like, what the hell? (laughs) I had a buddy of mine. He caught a 43 inch sturgeon here a couple years ago. He's this guy stands six foot eight. He was in a canoe on the Mississippi. It took them like 90 minutes to get it up to the surface. Just, they just they have so much energy. Jeff, I can barely walk and chew gum at the same time. I couldn't imagine reeling in a freaking fish that big on a canoe. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't have the core strength or the coordination to do that. <laughs> yeah. It's it's remarkable. Hats off to him. Yeah, he now he lives further over towards Rochester, Minnesota, so he doesn't get over here as often as, as uh, I wish he would. But it's just how it goes. How it goes, man. Life goes on. Yeah, yeah. He's got a couple of kids, and so it it really takes up his time. And but he still he still gets out there and go does some deer hunting and such. Yeah, we got some. Uh, we got you know a lot of varmint hunting this summer coming up. We got a lot of fishing coming up this summer. Uh, then we're going to roll into some elk roll into some spring bear, spring turkey, and then mule deer season. So um, I got a few guys that just moved up here and they want to try to their luck on some mule deer. I might take them out and show them the ropes, show them where to go. I'm not going to put them in my best spots because who does that? But <laughs> I will take them out and go let them, let them throw some lettuce animals. That's, That's pretty nice. exciting. Yeah. And it's, it's really nice showing someone who's new to the hunting experience how to hunt. You know, talking about 20, 25-year-old men that have never 
never pulled the trigger on something, taking them out and hunting a, a deer for the first time. It's really a neat experience. If you, if you ever get the chance, just invite a city slicker up in the mountains with you. It's, it's fantastic. You know, my, uh, I just got an announcement yesterday that my aunt and uncle are moving back from California. He wants to go hunting. So I, so we're in the, we're in the process of trying to get him set up on, on trying to figure out because they're moving to Nebraska. Now it's like, it'd probably be easier for him to actually come and hunt with me, but I need, I don't know his limitations and how much he can walk. So I don't think a mule deer will be up his alley, but I figured I can, I could probably put him on uh, some whitetail and uh, either either do a crossbow or do a shotgun season with them or a gun season. We'll figure out something to make, make it work for them. That's a, my brothers, man. My brothers are so mad at me every elk season. They're like, man, you don't invite us. Yada, yada. Like, You're all fat. There's no way you guys can keep up with me up in these mountains, man. It's just, it's a different kind of these mountains versus your mountains versus Texas or whatever. It's all so different. I'm talking about like in a 45 minute drive, you're climbing 3000 feet. And that 3,000 feet of difference just literally takes your breath away. And after being here for a year, I finally got to where I was comfortable enough, like walking around the mountains, doing a couple miles. And it's taken me four years to get to where I can do seven or eight in a day. And it's just exhausting. It, I, I have a nice Tempur-Pedic mattress and all that comfy, comfy living stuff. I've never slept better than a 10-mile day underneath the stars on a little blow up little camping mattress inside of a sleeping bag. I will zonk out. Just <laughs> saw some log. It's so exhausting. It just elevation change. I took my buddy, Paul, he's from Illinois. Uh, and I went, took him on a spring bear hunt one year and boy, he, we were not having it. We were both out of shape. We had that summer fat come on us. We were both exhausted. We were tired and we're climbing up really steep hills to get to places where you know not too many people would go like oh there's nobody gonna there's no trails that lead up this way there's a nice meadow up here we'll go up here and camp out for a few days and we get up to that meadow man and there's a plastic bottle there you're just like oh hell like someone was here a week ago you know and that's pretty upsetting about public hunting especially a lot of people that abuse the public hunting the public land hunts and but it's also really nice because I have 9 million acres to play around in instead of grandpa's backyard. Yeah. You know, you guys are, I'm, I'm a little envious about that. Cause you guys have that ability to, to walk for miles and not have to worry about seeing anybody here. We have property lines, we have fences, we have everything that they'll stop you. So basically you, you got to do a lot of scouting up until that season. And, and then even still then you look for your pinch points, your transition areas and such where they're bedding down for food, water, so we, we it, it, as a whitetail hunter, we don't get the luxury to be able to walk around all that much, you know. And at the places that we do have public land, uh, or the, the, a large amount of them, you're always going to find multiple people. But there's a few places around here that I hunt that are public land that I don't see anybody until uh, um, the rut. And then after that, then all the deer shuts down because everybody hits it so hard, which is kind of frustrating. And then we have uh, Nicolay National Forest that went way up north, but now you're not competing against other hunters. You're competing against a bear wolves and cats that's what it's like hunting in nez pierce nez pierce national forest is millions of acres of just wilderness straight up wilderness no motor vehicles allowed that kind of thing you get a lot of horse teams that go up there things like that but 
other than that, there's nobody up there. But come during the rut, it's a choir of just just elk mules left and right. And but again, you're competing with wolves and stuff. And I've had I've never personally been had a herd spooked by wolves, but there's a buddy of mine who tells a story. He's so he's down in this draw. He's at full, he's at full draw on this elk. Just not a huge trophy elk, but a definitely a shooter elk. And the elk looks behind him and he's like right behind a tree where he can't get a shot. And he's trying to move around where he can get a shot. And all of a sudden, three or four wolves just come through this, just tearing through this valley, and that elk just takes off. Uh-huh. And it was all 80 yards from him, you know. Like I couldn't he said it's so overgrown and infested with wolves in that area it's not even worth hunting is what he told me he may be telling me that to keep me out of there but that the wolf population is is insane uh the cats i we don't have much of a problem with them spooking really anything more they're way more of a nocturnal animal they'll they'll eat something while it's sleeping instead of while it's feeding and but the wolves, man, they're getting braver and braver every year. I'm I'm so glad we don't have them down where we are. But up in the Nez Pierce, it's about six and a half hours away. That's wolf country, timber country, real thick timber. And uh, there's actually a river on um, a place where we're going, where that we got mapped out for this spring, uh, this uh, September. It's called the River of No Return. Just super excited about that. <laughs> Well, at least, at least your life insurance policy is up to date, right? Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> now, I haven't heard any of my friends up in northern Wisconsin ever having the deer spook their their uh, or wolves spook their deer hunts and such. But they're coming to a place where it's it's very hard to see a deer. And even to try to see a mature deer is even rougher. Like a basket eight is, is a mature deer up north. Down here where I hunt, stuff like that, it's not uncommon. Like a basket eight is 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 three or four years old up there it's like you, you're lucky to get a a deer that's over that uh, six to seven year mark and wisconsin has elk hunt and stuff like that but it's a once a lifetime draw and good luck with that the nice thing is it's like only 10 bucks to get a point get a preference point and but we only have four tags to give to the population the other six are for the reservation and so that's about it on that should have married you a native girl you know, it's one of those things where I, you just never know. You just never know. Yeah. You just never know when it, when you, when you, when you, when you, cause my, my wife is from Illinois. So I was like, well, there goes that opportunity. But you know, I, I don't live near any of those areas where they, it's, it's interesting in how the, the population around here, like they'll, they'll disperse to the bigger cities or they'll stick close to the reservation. So it all depends on what tribe they're from too as well. So there's a tribe in New Mexico that I really, really would like to get in cahoots with. They uh, sell um, Himalayan tar, tar, Himalayan tar, tar, tar. yeah, tar. yeah, Himalayan tar tags in New Mexico. There's a, it's all on Indian reservation. Man, that's a once in a lifetime hunt. Be able to, you don't have to travel to New Zealand or whatever to go kill these animals. Mm-hmm. I would love to kill a Himalayan tar. There's something that I romanticize about mountain goats and sheep that just blow my mind just watching them just shoot up these hills and shoot up these mountains i'm i'm really i really want to kill a mountain goat here and a bighorn down in nevada that's 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 the bucket list right there killing one of them my bucket list my my primary the one i'd love to get after is a once lifetime male ibex hunt 
but that's I don't know if I'll ever see that. I might it may I may not even see it until I'm in my sixties. So that's also in New Mexico, right? Yes, yes, yes. In the what is it, the Frankfurt Mountain Range? I believe so. I've as well as things where I haven't even looked to see how much a preference put would cost to get to get one of those. Yeah, Steve Vernella shot one. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the only reason why I know about it. Steve Vernella got a tag and went and shot one. Yeah, he got a female one because males are once a lifetime. Females, you can get one once every. I can't remember. I it's it's, it's I know it's a, a long time. Ten between. years or such, right? Yeah, that's that's what I thought, but it could be less. It could be more. But it usually, I think, safe to say, right on that ten year mark. And he figures like, well, why try to go for one tag when I could try to maybe possibly have a potential of getting two tags over a lifetime? Right. And that's that's the thing uh, to the listeners out there. Um, a little disclosure, I am stupid. And if you find something that is a problem with what I say, and like if I shout out something like it's a fact, it's what I believe to be a fact, but you can prove me wrong. Uh, just yell at Jeff for it first, because I can't handle <laughs> any kind of confrontation. Yeah, any kind of confrontation. My listeners have been listening for over 100 episodes. They know I'm an idiot, and sometimes I'm on the money. Sometimes I have no clue, but it's one of those things where it's it's easily researchable. And oh, just yeah. one of those things I don't want to take away from the podcast. Right. Um, and oh, I'm getting really excited about this elk season, uh, especially with the large amount of wolf tags that was given out this year. We've had a few people tag out. Uh, their their limit of elk of wolf tags has been has been fulfilled. So they've killed all 30 wolves that they could kill. Wow. And it's like, holy shit, I'm getting really excited about, and that's mostly like trapping. Uh, they're all, most most wolves are killed by trapping. The odds of you seeing a wolf and killing a wolf are very slim, very elusive, and, and as much as a badass hunter people think they are, you're not as badass as a wolf. So <laughs> they will outsmart you. But uh, that's what I'm really excited about. I think the population may have gone down a little bit. They may have been pushed back in the mountains and uh, so I'm really excited to see how this elk season turns out. Hopefully you see a lot of new, new fawns and a lot of uh, a real population increase. I'm really excited about that. That'd be pretty exciting, man. So thank you. I think we've, we've, we hit a nice uh, spot where to lay a leap off, man. Cause we, I'm looking forward to watching your, your feed and hopefully you'll get a bear by the time J- July comes around. Cause you only, you only have a few more weeks left. I'll keep you updated, man. And I'll send you pictures. Of course. Excellent, dude. Well, thank you again, Cars, for coming on the podcast. It's great connecting with you. Dude, thanks for having me, bro. It's a real honor. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome.